Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to tune in to this week's message. I got to be honest with you, I was standing there in the back and... um, Debating in my heart whether or not I would share and start this message, but I was standing there and the Lord so clearly spoke to me as Pastor Chad was talking about what God is doing in Orlando. And the Lord asked me as she got to the part that we've toiled all night, we've worked all night, but God says, we haven't seen anything yet. And the Lord reminded me that many, many months before Pastor Chad and I came together to say, God, we're going to give our lives to a church planting movement. God put in my heart to believe to plant a thousand churches in my lifetime. And as I looked up on stage, I looked down at the front and the silhouette of a little boy who's six years old was there. And the Lord said, even if you don't finish it, you'll pass the baton to the next generation. And God is doing something in our midst this morning. There's a DNA that if we will worship him, God will put and plant his seed. His seed of potential and the potential of Christ in our hearts in a way that literally causes us to reorient, to prioritize the the desire of our life to say, God, we want to stand before you fulfilling all of our purpose but in our generation. The Bible said in Acts that David fulfilled all of his purpose and then he died. Come on. How many of you want to be a person to fulfill all that God has for your life? Amen. He does. There is so much more. There is so much more. We welcome you. My name is Pastor Craig. We're in the middle of a series called Missions March. This is week three. And uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, I think I have most in the room, but I see a lot of new faces. We just say welcome. I hope you connected with someone at our welcome uh, tent on the way in. It's a beautiful day out there. Happy spring. Everybody good and excited for spring? So it's also Palm Sunday. Everybody say Hosanna. In John 12 and 13, they said Hosanna. The Bible said they came out to Jesus and they yelled Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Bible said they dropped their palm branches. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus made his triumphal entry. But notice he didn't come in on a stallion or a tall horse. He came in on a donkey, a colt. Aren't you so thankful for the entry and humility that Jesus exemplifies for us? But it also tells us something about Palm Sunday, that the same people who coronated Jesus today crucified him on Friday. The praise of man is really fickle, isn't it? Really is fickle. That we are to live for things eternal, live for things that matter. I was taking time early this morning to reflect on Palm Sunday. It's the entrance of Holy Week. And so many emotions and thoughts flood my mind when I think about Holy Week and I think about what Jesus. And one of the things that just was overwhelming to me, Marcus, this morning was the fact that Jesus, even knowing that he had to endure the cross, was joyful. That we can trust God and know that even in the difficult circumstances of our life, God uses it for our good. That Jesus, the Bible said in First Peter, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He said, for the joy set before him. So listen, you could put on a note card or you could write it in your window this week or your mirror at home. That the G- This would be a biblical statement that we were the joy set before Jesus and now Jesus is the joy set before us. That because he pursued us, because he came after us, because he bought us with his precious blood, because he willingly went into Holy Week saying, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to accomplish the will of my Father. You and I have life and life eternal today. Amen? I'm so grateful for this morning. I'm so grateful. I come to worship. I I made a determination in my heart when I drove to church this morning, but ain't nobody worshiping for me. Jesus comes in on a colt and a donkey, and he says, if you don't, if these don't cry out, the stones shall cry out. And I don't know about you this morning. I'm trying to hold myself back, but I get excited to think of the goodness of Jesus Christ and how he saw us in our pity and our need, and yet he came. He left the glory 
armies of heaven to pursue us. And I'm grateful this morning. I'm so grateful for this morning. Come on, say Hosanna. Come on, say Hosanna. He is. He is the God most high. We're talking about God's blueprint for extending his kingdom on the earth until the return of Jesus Christ. We're in this series called Missions March, and first week we talked about a missions mindset. I talked to you about neutrality, never being an option. It's not enough to say you're just for God. You have to be with God. You have to be doing the work with God. You're a co-laborer with Christ. We talked about the, the effort and need for us to be aggressive, that the enemy of our soul is out attacking the kingdom of God. It suffers violence, but the violent take it by force. I painted a picture for you on stage of what it what Satan is doing to tempt, to blind, to lead in dark paths, to ultimately attack the hearts of those that we love. Pastor Chad last week looked at a message called Look Again. And he talked out of the book of James of the literally perfect law of liberty, that we get the revelation that Jesus Christ is not on a, in a borrowed tomb from Joseph of Marathia anymore, that, that we look again into the tomb and recognize that the Christ who has risen now is the perfect law of liberty inside of us. That he is expressing his life and manifesting his life through our lives to the people around us. And today we're going to look at a message called a harvest of souls. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24 is where we're going to begin this morning. I'm going to read in verse 14 in just a moment from the New Living Translation. Matthew chapter 24 beginning in verse 14. Let's talk about our message. You know, our message happens to be the most important message on earth. And as we talk about this message, I'm going to submit some things I hope you don't just understand this morning, but I hope it causes you, if you can, to revisit some things as it relates to our message. What is that message? The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he came to this earth and he lived a sinless life and he paid a debt that he didn't know because we owe a debt that we couldn't pay. And on the third day, the Father in heaven vindicated him by raising him from the dead. He spent 40 days on the earth preaching the kingdom of God. And on the 40th day, he ascended at the Mount of Olives. And the angel said, in the same way you saw him ascend, he shall come again. That's our message. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see how important this message is in Matthew 24 and verse 14. Jesus, the Bible says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world. So that, there's the henna clause in, in, in Greek, it would be the therefore, the so that. Why is the gospel of good news of the kingdom preached out the earth? So that all nations will hear it. Notice that. All nations will hear it and then the end will come. Now, we hear a lot of people talking today about the end is near. The end is near. The imminent return of Jesus Christ, right? We see natural disasters in our world. Immediately, people, the news outlets start talking about the end is near. Immediately, people put on their signs and stand on street corners that the end is near. We see atrocious acts of terrorism, like stunned the world when those men many months ago on a Friday night in Paris walked into nightclubs, into malls, and began to massacre people. We hear people say the end is near. The end is near, like, like the, the, man, the, the young man who went into the, the Sandy Hook Elementary and just massacred a bunch of children, and the pain and the atrocity that was terrorism. And we, we say the end is near, and I'm not, I'm, not, um, I'm not minimizing that reality. They say, oh, the king is coming again soon. I'm not minimizing that, but I wonder if God ever stands there in heaven and listens to us talk more about the end being near than what he designed and desires to happen before the end. 
wonder if he's looking at Christians and saying, I know you guys are obsessed about the end is near. Yeah, I gave you the parable about the ten virgins and five. You better be ready. But the reality is there's something more important than the end. And the thing that's more important than the end is that my message, my gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That this is why I came and this is my impetus and this is my heart for you, church. I'm so thankful we live in a day where people are finally starting to put, stop uh, putting focus or trust in some political campaign to change our nation. We are completely politically bankrupt, and I'm almost thankful for it that people finally can turn to Jesus Christ and realize there's a real change campaign. And it ain't through Donald Trump, it ain't through Hillary Clinton or Phil DeBurn or anybody else. It's through Jesus Christ who came and inaugurated his kingdom. And the Bible says that his kingdom is unshakable. That we put our trust in a kingdom that's unshakable. But he said that this message shall be preached to all of the nations, and then the end will come. I want to talk today about our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ to help those in need. Now, when you hear the word responsibility, your mind probably goes one of two ways. You hear the word responsibility and you think of the word obligation or you think of the word opportunity. Most of us think obligation. Let me prove it to you. If you're married in the room, when was the last time that your spouse said during dinner, you're eating your dinner, the food's just on your plate, it's hot, the steam's hitting you in the mouth, the nose, the face, and your spouse looks over at you and says, hey, tonight, honey, it's your responsibility to do the dishes. And your response was, oh, I love that opportunity. Oh, yes, I've been praying for that opportunity all day long, right? We usually think of responsibility as obligation, we think of responsibility as obligation. You can imagine how dangerous that is when it comes to our responsibility as believers. Because what we're going to talk about today is one of the best opportunities. Yes, it is one of our responsibility as believers in Christ, but it's the best opportunity to show God's love on the earth, and it's this simple. You ready for it? To find people in need and meet their need. To find people in need and meet their need. It's that simple. In James chapter 2, we're going to read a few verses beginning in verse 14. But before we read them, I'll, I'm going to read some strong scriptures today. And we're going to see God's perspective on helping those in need. And truthfully, it's a little bit stronger in scripture than what the, probably what we think. And as believers, we all know God wants us to help those in need. But we're going to read scripture that helps us understand that God is really serious about this. Really serious. I'm going to give you a few things to help you understand your responsibility to help those in need. Now, as we read James chapter 2, just remember when we get to verse 17, I didn't write this or I didn't make this up. I didn't do that. This is God's word. It's strong. It might challenge your theology, but it's entirely possible that your theology is not God's. So what we can do is we can read it, drop our theology if it's wrong, and embrace his. Pick up his. James chapter 2 Beginning in verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye, have a good day, stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Deep trust in God isn't enough. Here's the hard part. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and it is useless. Do you understand what God is saying through his word? He's looking at me today and saying, Craig, your faith and your trust in me is of no value to me if it never produces good deeds. 
If it never produces actions, it's dead and useless to me. What does that mean? It's useless, or, or, or let's say it this way. It's not enough for us as the church to just come together and to worship and maybe cry during worship and sing songs about using us, but then we never move ourselves into action. It, it is not enough for us to come together and just preach the word and hear the word. Those moments in worship are supposed to be the very moments that literally motivate us to go find someone in need in Woodstock and meet their need. To go find someone in need in Kennesaw and meet their need. To go find someone in need in Dallas and meet their need. To go find someone in need in Noonan and meet their need. To go find someone in need in Canton and meet their need. God is a God of justice. As our heart connects with God in worship, His sense of justice ought to flow over our hearts like Niagara Falls. That we leave feeling what God feels. Our heart connects with Him. It's not enough. Faith without works is dead. Now, Luke chapter 10, this is the story that I think is most synonymous with helping those in need. It's the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There's a couple things I found that we need to pay attention to as it relates to our responsibility to help people in need. Would you read it with me? Luke chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading verse 25 from the New Living Translation. One day, an expert, this is an expert uh, in the religious law, one who knows Hebraic law, he stood up, notice, he gets a little smart in a minute, you'll see this, he's testing Jesus. He stood up to test Jesus by asking the Lord of glory a question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law of Moses say? You know the Pentateuch. You know the Torah. You know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You're an expert. The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Go to the next verse. Jesus said, you're right. Ding, 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 ding. Do this, you'll live. Notice, the man wanted to justify his actions. I know you've never done this before when you ask Jesus a question. but he, he wanted to justify his actions after Jesus has responded. And so he replied with a story. And Jesus said, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it is down. It is a descent. That's why the scripture says down. I was there in May and you go from Mount Zion, the top of Mount Moriah. And you, you go down below sea level all the way to the Dead Sea. Jericho is the oldest, most ancient city in the entire world. And it's still there, still persevering. And this man was going down on the way. It was a bloody way. It's called the bloody way in Scripture. This man was on a descent. And the Bible says as he's on it, he was attacked by bandits. And they stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and left him half dead beside the road. I love this. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Don't you ever trust a preacher. It's a joke. The priest, now look at the next verse. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan. What are Samaritans? Samaritans were Jews who in the 7th century B.C. were taken captive when Jerusalem fell to Assyria. The Jews intermarried with Assyrians. They created half-breeds. Jews, especially rabbis and messiahs, would never reach out and touch a Samaritan. This is a huge taboo. And Jesus, when he's saying this to the expert in the law, the man's jaw's dropping open because he's at a despised Samaritan. Notice this. Came along, and when he saw the man, everybody say saw. He felt compassion for him. He, go, he went over to him. He Samaritan smoothed, soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three, Jesus said, 
which you say was a neighbor to the man who attacked by, was attacked by the bandits? And, and the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do likewise. I think there are three things we see in the story of the Good Samaritan that we must pay attention to in order to walk out and be faithful with our responsibility to help those in need. Number one, part of our responsibility is to notice. Number one, to notice. Go back to verse 33 of our passage. Notice the Bible says a despised Samaritan came along and when he saw the man. To notice someone doesn't mean just to see them. It means to see them and then feel something. Noticing is not having someone in sight. It's having someone in sight and then feeling something. I can see you but not notice you. When I walked into a room with a bunch of other ladies, I saw a bunch of other ladies. But there was one that I noticed. Her name was Meredith Ann Robertson. And when I saw her, I felt something. There's a big difference. Every love story starts with somebody noticing. Not seeing, but seeing and feeling. Seeing and experiencing. I felt something. That is what it means to notice. Now notice this. The only way I actually notice you is that I feel something. The only way that I know that I actually notice someone is that there's a feeling that accompanies seeing that person. That is what it means to notice. It's extremely important for God for us to notice. You know, my wife and I, we've been married eight years, nine years now. Coming up on nine, very close. And um, in nine years, we've moved eight times. Okay, some would call that crazy. I think I would too. (laughs) Well, we had stuff in storage. We've gone left and right. I've carried so many refrigerators, and I've carried the same coffee table up and down steps. We lived on the third floor one time. Bryce helped me when I moved the first time. About broke my dad's shin going up backwards. It landed. About broke his leg. And I mean, I've just I've been all over the place moving stuff. And, and, and for us, one of the things that we've always done is in buying a house, we've owned a few houses, we, we become our own interior designers. And my wife's really good at this. And it's kind of a value of ours to create a nice, warm, relaxing environment in our home. We want to practice hospitality. And one of the primary problems, though, with being your own decorator in your own home is that you develop blind spots because you're familiar with your own house, right? You're totally familiar. So what happens is you can't see the pile of shoes at the front door anymore. Your guests come over, and the poor people have to shimmy around the whole thing to try to get in the front door. You're just like, come on in, yeah, and there's shoes up to the ceiling. You don't even see it anymore. Why? Because... You develop a blind spot. Come on, man. How many of you know you come into your house, you buy a new house, you rent a house, you rent an apartment, your wife wants you to hang a picture, so in the meantime, you just lean up against the wall that you're going to hang it, but you don't have your nails and hammer right then, and then a day turns into a week, and week turns into three weeks, and three weeks into three months, and three months into three years, and finally somebody comes over and says, hey, buddy, do you have a hammer? I mean, I can help you hang. Oh, I didn't even see that, right? And we just, we just develop blind spots. Or what about the guy who paints half the wall, and then he runs out of paint? And then, uh, and then all of a sudden he puts it down, and then a week turns into a month, and people are like, oh, that's a nice, neat design you got there. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we, we develop these blind spots. The same can be true in our daily life, our spiritual life. We go about our own routines. We go to the same Starbucks. We go visit the same post office. We go to the same school, and we don't even, even notice or see the needy, hurting people all around us because we're just so busy going about our business. And I got good news for you this morning, church. This message won't turn into one where you leave condemned and you feel sad and bad about yourself so you can go do something good for someone this week, not, not because you care about them, but just because you want to feel better about yourself. No, that's called condemnation, and that results in temporary behavior modification, but it never transforms people. So I got good news for you. I'm not going to make you feel bad, so you'll spend one week doing outreach. That's not what we want. That's not what we're after. That's not what this series is about. 
It's not it at all. So I feel good about who I am. No, no. See, God knows that we're given to routine. I'm uninterested in motivating you today through manipulation or cool stories or make you cry or use persuasive words so you all of a sudden start thinking about other people. No, no, no. God knows you're human. He knows you're given to routine. And he knows after a while that you miss the fact that there's hurting people all around you. So he's made provisions to help you. He's made provisions to get you outside of your own self. Every single one of us in this room, we fall and pray to routine. We stand in the same line for Starbucks. We park in the same long line in the drive-thru. And we've lost sight that our barista is typically grumpy and not happy. And we chalk it up to finally it's just her. But we fail to see that it's actually because she's hurting. And she's lived one heck of a life. And she's been abused eight times by the time she was 10 years old. And she's, she's hurting deeply. And she has nobody. She's waiting for someone to speak a word of encouragement. But God knows, there we are, that she needs someone to stop and give concern and care for them. But God knows we're in a hurry. And dear God, we're on our way to our work. And we want a double tall half-calf caramel macchiato with two splendors and one sweet and low. And we totally forget about the barista who's hurting. We totally forget about the person who's behind the cash register who's hurting and so desperately reaching out for concern and care for somebody else but we're given to our daily routine and we just move past it we look at people but we don't see people we we, we look at individuals but we don't feel anything anymore when we see those individuals we look at things around us but we don't sense it anymore and that's what this passage tells me notice the bible says in matthew chapter 9 i want you to see this real quick this is a powerful powerful passage jesus went about all the cities villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the gospel of the kingdom he healed every sickness and disease but when he saw just like the good samaritan he saw the multitude he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd and he said to his disciples the harvest truly is plentiful but the laborers are few so therefore you pray to the lord of the harvest for lost people no pray to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest notice verse 36 he saw that don't make a lot of sense because he if you read the gospels he was constantly around people what do you mean he saw of course he did they meet they meet him in his vacation spot he was always looking at people but the bible says this verse says he saw the multitude which tells me you can look at a lot of people be around a lot of people but not see people you can be around a lot of people in your routine but not see them. And just like you're at home with your picture sitting against the wall, but you can't see it because you get in your routine. Jesus, help us be a church who sees people for who they are. Help us, dear God, to see beyond what is the veneer and the outward appearance. See, all of, of all people on the planet, we believers, we should be different at the store. We should be different at Costco's. We should be different at Sam's Club. We should be different when we're at our schools. We should be different with a clerk who has an attitude. We should treat them perfectly not because we're perfect we shouldn't be complaining we shouldn't be negative we should be indifferent in traffic not like everybody else why not because we're better but because we see differently i was in panda express down here the other day and there was a lady she was looked to be in her mid-20s and she did have a downtrodden face and she's just working as hard as she can and a long line and there's a lady standing right in front of me and she's just watching this lady behind the behind the desk and behind the the the, the menu item or the buffet there and 
And finally, this lady gets up to the desk and, and she looks at the lady and she says, Ma'am, I'm, uh, I've been watching this whole time and you don't have any smile on your face. You, you do understand you're in customer service. You need to be smiling if I'm the customer. And I pause, man. There's like righteous indignation. You know what I'm talking about? I paused and I looked at that young girl and, I said, and she said, she said, is there any reason? She said, yeah, you don't understand that I've got a six-month-old and that six-month-old is sick right now. I don't know if she said the flu and I, there's been multiple nights where I've not slept at all and I'm working a double. And I looked at that lady and I said, listen, to the lady behind the, store, the, the desk, I said, listen, don't you ever allow someone to speak to you like that. You just understand that there are people who care for you, people who love you. God notices you. And I just told her, I just used the opportunity to preach to God. I don't care who's around because that's what we do, don't we? We get in our routine. We get in our busyness. And all we begin to do is not see people. We don't feel anything anymore. What happened to us as believers if we walk through our culture and don't feel? Jesus saw the multitude and he felt compassion on them. He, something deep down in his bowels began to turn. People do ugly stuff. They're mean because they're hurt, folks. And it's imperative for us to understand what the human condition really is. Some people, oh, well, they're just mean. No, their meanness is connected to a root problem, that they are weary and they are scattered and they have no leader. The word weary in verse 36 means they're exhausted and oppressed. Scattered speaks to no direction. Well, you'd be mean too if you're exhausted, oppressed by leaders you put hope in and you had no direction in life. You'd use the middle finger too in traffic. If you were exhausted, oppressed, and had no direction in life, that is a bad state. And that's where our humans are. That's where people and lost people are. They are oppressed. They are exhausted. They don't know where to turn. They have no direction. They have no life. And we as believers are to be Jesus. We are to look at them, understand them, and win the emotion of the gospel reach out to them do you know the number one most attributed emotion to Jesus in all the gospels compassion because compassion is the emotion of the gospel it's the emotion that is connected to the gospel message compassion for people a gospel church is a compassionate church come on dwelling place a gospel church is not a critical church a gospel church is not a point finger at somebody church but why because we understand what God has afforded us if not for the grace of God where would we be if not for the grace of God where would I be where would you be so we see people for who they are and our heart goes out to them to say you're a dispenser of the gospel and not have compassion, I'll question the gospel you believe. I question the gospel you've received. The gospel is a message of hope. The gospel is a message of compassion. The gospel is a message of, 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 of love and mercy and grace. And those who are products of the gospel are those who literally are not full of comparison. They're not critical. They don't condemn people. They don't point out others' faults. God didn't come point out your faults. God covered your faults with love. God covered your thoughts and your, your faults with his love and his mercy and grace. Can you imagine? Dear God, I just got prophetic imagination this week praying about this message. Can you imagine a community called Dwelling Place right in the middle of this city, but ultimate multiple more cities who literally are so full of compassion and long-suffering and people come in and they don't have it all together and they don't got it all together and they got tattoos or maybe messed up hair or maybe they stink or whatever. Or maybe they've been in the house for years, but they're still not living up to that which we desire and we're full of long-suffering because God is long-suffering with us. We're full of compassion. We're full of love. We're full of mercy. To, that's what church is supposed to be about. Compassion. Well, I'm just not a compassionate person. Well, then I would ask you, when's the last time you considered the gospel? Because you can't have a full-on frontal hug with the gospel and not develop compassion for others. 
When you have a frontal hug with the gospel, you leave instantly with major compassion for people. And so if you don't have compassion, you need to reconsider the gospel. You need to reconsider where you were at. You need to put your attention back on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And all of a sudden, grace and mercy and compassion begins to build up. What does it mean? Have you considered just for a moment how God takes notice of you? He notices everything about you. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Reading from the paraphrase of Eugene Peterson. He said, what's the price of a pet canary? Some loose change, right? And God cares what happens to it more than even you do. He pays even greater attention to you. Down to the last detail. Even numbering the hairs on your head. What do you say, Craig? If you're a man in here and you're grieving over the loss of hair... It's entirely possible when you lay your head down on your pillow at night and you're rumbling and complaining, God, I'm only 25 and I should at least have hair until I'm 50. What's this receding hairline? It looks like a widow's peak. It looks like an M on my head. Everybody looks at me and says, mmm. It's like an M. What's going on, God? It's entirely possible when you're laying in your bed, grumbling and complaining, that God looks down and he says, 9,267. What, Lord? 9,000. Oh, 112. What do you mean, Lord? What are you saying? Oh, I've just been watching you the last few hours. I've had my eyes on you for about four hours straight, and um, I heard you grumbling and complaining about your hair, so I just started counting them. Son, you've got to understand, I'm enamored by you. I can't keep my eyes off you. He notices every detail about you. How then do we think we can reach people with the gospel if we don't notice their needs and meet them? How then are we going to see a church movement and a church grow and God begin to move mightily in a city and lives be drastically changed if we, the people of God, don't notice the needs around us? Notice the details around us. I love how David... David goes on, and he speaks this as well. You know, notice, notice this word, notice, is huge in God's eyes. And it's not just a Hollywood story. That's how every Hollywood story starts, by the way, right? One person in a room notices another person. But this is actually not Hollywood who has the edge on this. This is what God did with you. Because he noticed you in the room called earth long before you noticed him. And you caused an emotion to be emitted inside of him. You cause compassion to well up inside of him. This is what David said in Psalm 51 and verse 17. He said, you want to know a verse to memorize for Missions March? Memorize this one. Heart-shattered lives, ready for love. Don't for a moment escape God's notice. Dear God, what if you put that down in your heart and walked around every day? Heart-shattered lives that are around you, in your school, in your, in the, it, wherever you go, the heart-shattered lives. What are they? They're ready for love. They're ready for receiving. They don't for a moment escape God's notice. He notices every one of these heart-shattered lives. He notices all of them. He notices details of their life. Noticing is one of the most powerful things you can do in a relationship. You know, I learned this as a dad when my son started playing sports. My daughter's now three. He's six. And she's getting ready for her first recital. And she got her tutu this last week, the one that's going to be used in the main recital. And she had to grow out her hair. We're going to do that cute bob again. I think my wife's going to cut it. Here in the next few weeks, I'm trying to, we're in this deba debate right now at home all the time. I want her hair down to like the floor, you know. Don't ever cut your glory, young lady. And uh, 
And so we're always in this debate, but, but, but I saw her the other day and she put the tutu on and then she put that hair up in a bun. And man, as a dad, I noticed everything about her. I noticed what her ears do. I noticed every spot on her cheeks. I'm enamored with her. I just keep on paying attention to her. I can just see everything about her. And I don't know what's going to happen when this recital thing goes down in a couple of weeks. All right, I saw her practicing this week. But my son, the same way, when he first started playing sports, he's played baseball for three years. He did three, four, and five. And his four-year-old, I didn't coach him. I try to coach him in all that I can, at least in this season of life. And so I just finished coaching him in basketball his first year. But in, in baseball, I remember when he was four, I was not coaching that year, so I was up in the stands or in the dugout. And my son began to develop this habit. He was notorious for looking up in the stands at my face. And it wasn't just one or two times, like 80 to 100 times per game. Like every pitch that goes, right? He's looking up in the stands again. I mean, he's just looking again. And it's after every pitch. And sometimes I'm just like, I used to get so frustrated. I'd say, Knox, pay attention to the game. Not to me. His, his, my dad, he calls him Ball Ball. Ball Ball is his grandpa. He, he came to his basketball game last week and he told him, he said, son, when you're out there on that court, you don't look up in the stands. You just, you just focus on the court, focus on the goal, focus on your man, right? But then I realized very quickly, right? I realized very quickly that I noticed my son was looking up into the stands to see if daddy was noticing him. And I coached him in soccer this year. And he played a little FIFA on Xbox 360, so he's learning his moves. And finally on game two, he gets down the field. He has an open shot, and he goes around this one guy, and he kicks it. And it's not just rolling in. He actually gets it up in the air. And he's seen a messy too many times run around, throw up his hands in the air, and slide on his knees across midfield. And when he kicked it in the goal, he turned around. We went up one nothing. And when he gets nervous, he gets his face like this. And he turned around, and he looked. He's looking like this. And he saw me at midcourt, midfield. And immediately when he caught his daddy's attention, and he saw daddy was looking and noticing, his countenance changed. And it, I could see his face said, all is right in my world. Daddy is noticing everything about you today. Everything. And he notices everything about those in our community who are weary, scattered, and with no shepherd. He notices you. He notices details about you. Look how David said in Psalm chapter 8 about God noticing him. This is how he expressed. He said, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why are you noticing us, God, and the son of man that you visit him? Now notice is important to God, and if you understand how important it is to God that God notices everything about you, then you also need to understand the other side of the coin. And that's how important it is to God that you notice the people in need around you, that you notice them, that you open up and feel something again, that your compassion begins to grow again. I want to read two Psalms, two Proverbs, I should say, that are very strong. I'm just going to let them preach to you. First one's Proverbs 28, 27. He who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. That's strong. Proverbs 21. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. God takes noticing people very, very seriously. So what's our responsibility to notice? Number one. Number two, to help. We can't just notice. We can't just feel, but we've got to do something about it. Notice verse 34. The Bible says that this good Samaritan, he went to seek him. And the Bible says, verse 34, look, he soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and he bandaged them. He helped. One of my favorite parts of the story of the good Samaritan is this guy goes to Jesus to try to trap him. 
And he says, uh, who's my neighbor per se? Because I only have two. So, hey, son of God, let's see if you can answer this correctly. And here is Jesus' response in telling him this story. In essence, Christ's response to the question is, who is my neighbor is this. Anywhere you find someone in need, you found your neighbor. Can I say it another way? Because I think it sticks with us when I say it another way. You ready? Here's another way to say it. Any person in need would love to have you as a neighbor. That's who your neighbor is, someone who's in need. That's a neighbor is someone who around you has need. And one of the greatest gifts that God could give our neighbor is give them us. Give someone to meet their need, to recognize them, someone to help, to notice their need and help meet it. Let me ask you a tough question. It's not a trick question. But I ask you this question. And the promise that you have to make me is this. That when I ask the question, you're going to be honest to answer it with the first thought in your mind. I've asked this question to a lot of people. And so you don't have to say it out loud, but when I ask it, just answer it in your mind, okay? If I were to ask you this question, you remember back in the Bible, Genesis, that, that city called Sodom and Gomorrah? Remember Lot's wife, Pillar of Salt? Remember that city? Abraham standing on the ledge there at Masada, speaking to God, the terebinth trees. Remember, if I find 15 people. To... Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you what was the major sin of Sodom, what's the answer in your mind? Number one answer by far I get is sexual sin. Remember, tried to break down the doors, have sex with the angels. These men look really good. Major sexual deviant behavior. Well, that was my answer as well seven days ago until I read Ezekiel chapter 16. I want you to listen to this, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not... Aid the poor and the needy. They didn't aid. They saw the needs around them. And we've turned city of the city of Sodom and just to a city of deviant sexual behavior. Yeah, they did that. And we think, oh, that's just the worst city in the Bible ever, Sodom. It's not that hard, right? You just don't do that kind of stuff. Well, listen, as strongly as you feel about literally the, the guilt of sexual deviant behavior, I feel that much stronger about seeing people in need in our community and having plenty to meet their need and that we do nothing about it. People in our lives who we have the ability to outreach, to, to connect to, to meet a need, and yet we do nothing. We close off our hearts to them. This was the sin, Ezekiel said, of Sodom. They had more than enough to meet the needs of the people around them, and they did nothing. And some of you think, oh, I'm just being guilted today into doing some good things. Well, no, please. Don't help the needy because of some kind of guilt to read scriptures. I got you a whole lot better perspective than that. There's a much better reason to help people in need than just simply because the Bible says so. Anytime we do something just because the Bible says so, it, we run the risk of it being a religious and a legalistic reason. Because we're not understanding the heart of what God's asking. So let me ask you a question. If we are asked by God to understand his heart about noticing people, why does he want us to help meet their needs? Because he loves them. He loves them. He wants to meet their needs. Not because he wants to give us religious obligations. And one of the best reasons to notice people in need and to go help them by meeting their needs is this. I'm going to give you a statement and I'll read the scripture. Here it is. You ready? Your worst day serving someone else will always be better than your best day satisfying yourself. Your worst day serving someone else will always be better than your best day satisfying yourself. I'll read it to you in Scripture in Isaiah 58. 
If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness. You want to get out of the gloom? You want to be refreshed yourself? You want to get out of the cloud linus? You don't want it to rain on your parade every day? He says your gloom will become like noonday if you pour yourself out for the hungry, if you satisfy the desire of the afflicted. What does that mean? Your worst day serving someone else will always be better than your best day satisfying yourself. You hear people in church say a lot, I'm just so lonely. I'm just so lonely. I just, I just don't have anybody. People in the church, church is growing. They're connected. I just don't have anybody. And here's my first thought. Listen, brother. Listen, sister. There are people all around you with needs. And you want to be surrounded by friends who will jump off for a bridge for you? You want to be surrounded by friends who will take a nine millimeter to the chest for you? Here's what you do. You notice somebody else's need and you meet that need and you'll never be lonely. I'm going to say it really strongly. You ready? I have never in my life met a lonely person who puts other people first. I've never met a lonely person who puts others first, who seeks to meet the needs of others first. Never. Why, Pastor Craig? Because everyone wants to be noticed, and everyone has needs, and we all love it when someone comes in our life and meets our need. That's why we're committed to that person. That's why we give up our lives to that person. They've met our need. So it's not enough to just notice. We must do something about what we, what we see. That's why it's so important to feel compassion. Everybody say to notice. To help. And then thirdly, to pursue. Part of our responsibility is to pursue. A big part of our responsibility is pursuing. Verse 34, look what the scripture said of the Good Samaritan. Going over to him. He didn't pass by on the other side of the road. He went over to him. And notice the first two, the priest and the Levite, were on their way to minister, right? They were going to Jericho to minister. But the question is not, are you on your way to minister? It's, are you ministering on your way? So they were on their way to minister, but this man ministered on his way. I wish I could tell some young people that. Oh, I got a call to minister, but you can't stack chairs? Come on, somebody. You, you called to minister, but you can't clean church or clean toilets? I'm on my way to minister. Well, if you're on your way to minister, you better be ministering on your way. And notice this man, he crossed over. He pursued. He pursued. He went to them. And the Bible says he felt compassion. Now listen, I love this word pursue. It's really important to me. Because when I think of the word pursue, I think of the word romance. You know what the romance is? It's the art of unpredictable pursuit. If you're romantic to your spouse, you, you pursue them in unpredictable ways. You're different all the time. But here's the thing, that God is romantic with you. He not only has sent Jesus for you if you're in this room and don't know him, but now he sends the Holy Spirit to come after you, to draw you to the heart of the Father. That's what romance is. You think about the Great Commission. Go into all the world as you are going. Go. You've got to move. You've got to go about your daily life. What? Make disciples of all nations. That's what he says. The Old Testament command was come and see. The New Testament command is go and tell. Pursue after people. And here's what's so brilliant about this man's response. When Jesus tells him, what does the law of Moses say to you to inherit eternal life? And this man gets it right. He says, oh, it's to pursue God and pursue people. And Jesus says, ding, 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 ding. You can boil the whole Bible down to those two commands. Pursue God, pursue people. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. To pursue God and to pursue people. I want to read you one final story. It's a story of Zacchaeus in Luke 19. 
I love this story because this is a story of pursuit. This is a story of noticing, it's a story of helping, and a story of pursuit. Now Jesus, notice this, was entering Jericho. Before we read this story, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Zacchaeus before we even open it. First of all, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. And he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see what he could see. So we know this story of Zacchaeus, but notice this. We've made this story all about how short he is. Really. And yet some of the most important words in the whole Bible come out of Jesus' mouth in the middle of this story. And sometimes it's would gloss over him. Luke chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho. He made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. Rich man. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Notice that. You're going to need to know that in a minute. Name, name, name each neighbor, name. He called him by name, Zacchaeus. He said, quick, come down. Oh, I love this part. I must be a guest in your house today. That, my friends, is some of the most powerful words in all of Scripture. Jesus said, I must be a guest in your house today. And I'm going to tell you what we, where we are as a church and where we are as a nation. We have lived in a generation that previous to us has believed that we are going to reach people with a rational faith. we got to teach them the books of the Bible. we got to memorize all scriptures. we got to get them in Awanas. we got to get them in Sunday school. All those things are important. But if we're going to reach the generation that God has called us to reach, we got to present more than just a rational faith. It must be a relational faith. It must be a relational gospel. We must become the hands and feet of Jesus to relate people. Because this Bible, our Bible says that Jesus looked up and said, I must be a guest in your house today. And what we did for so many years of church life is we put our kids in Royal Rangers and Sunday school and vacation Bible school. And we put them in these, these, these environments where we taught them, hey, Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree to see what he could see. And the Bible, and the, the, the rhyme then says, and Jesus looked up, pointing his finger and said, Zacchaeus, get down from there, for today I must be at your house. And in that one simple song, we infected millions of people around the world to believe in a finger-pointing Jesus. And he is not a finger-pointing Jesus. He presented a relational gospel, and he said, today i got to be at your house. Today I'm going to be a guest at your house. And I, I think it's high tide and the church's time for us to no longer believe the old pursuit of, hey, listen, you got to believe like us, and then you got to become or behave like this, and then you can belong to us. You got to believe in the gospel. You got to behave like us. Put a tie on, pull up those pants, take the tattoo off, put your hair right, and then you can belong to us. No, that is not scriptural, and that is not dwelling place church. We're going to be a church that says you can belong long before you believe. You can belong long before you become. You can belong long before you behave. And as we embrace people with open arms and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today, then the gospel changes people. The relational gospel changes people. Jesus didn't have to say anything to him. The next verse says he was so struck in his heart when he encountered truth that he looks and says hey I'll make restitution I'll give four times the amount of everything I've stolen I'll give back half of my goods to the poor why because you can't have a frontal with Jesus Christ and not be restituted you cannot have a frontal with Jesus Christ and want to continue to live in sin this is the gospel of Jesus Christ this is the gospel what if we looked at people in our community and said, you belong here long before you believe and become. Long before you behave correctly, you belong. You belong here. You belong here. You belong here. You belong here. That's what he's saying. 
Because listen, if the president contacts me this week and says, I want to have lunch with you, am I going to his house or is he going to my house? Normally, the more important person and the more important you are, the lesser important person has to go to the house of the important person. That's not our Jesus. Jesus, who is the most important, who is the image and glory of God, he says, I'm coming to your house today. I must be a guest at your house today. Long before you got together, Zacchaeus, long before you cleaned up and tied it up, here I come, here I come. This is our Jesus. Dear God, this is our Jesus. We got to pursue. What's the Bible about? Pursuing God and pursuing people. Pursuing God and pursuing people. And I don't know about you. The scripture goes on in the end of this passage. And think about it. Notice this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus left everything in heaven and came to pursue us. That's how important you are to him. And with that heart, we must reach out to other people. How do you know if you're following Jesus? He'll always, always lead you to lost people. For me in my life, when you think about the prodigal son, takes his father's wealth, his portion goes off and squanders on dirty living, wealth, prostitutes, finds himself in the pig pen and says, if I can go back and be a servant... We call it the prodigal son. You know what prodigal means? Recklessly extravagant. Well, let me tell you, I don't think it's the prodigal son. I think it's the prodigal father. You tell me which was more recklessly extravagant, the sin of the son or the love of the father. The love of the father was more extravagant than any sin he could ever commit. It's the prodigal father who comes after. People look at it and say, oh, there's only one trespasser in that story. No, there's not. There's two trespassers. Number one was a son who broke a lot of rules and left his daddy's house. But there was another transgressor, and that was the father who broke a lot of rules to run after his son who's dirty, to run after his son. And God says, I don't care. I've come to seek and save that which is lost. I will gird up my loins, and I will begin to run. I will begin to sprint. I will put a coat on his back. I will put a ring on his finger, and I'll put sandals in his feet. For my son was once dead but lives again that's our thing he lives again he is alive again this is our father this is the heart of our father and what i'm asking this week with my face in the carpet is dear god from the beginning of this movement would you let this missional dna seat be so seeped in a part of who we are that we never see it's easier to establish a culture than it is to protect a culture and we're at a place where we have to protect what it is god you're doing in our church what it is that you're asking us to do with the church planning movement why that we have the heart of the father ingrained in our dna we're after pursuing people. We notice people. We pursue after people. We help people. We meet the needs. And yet God reaches them through our expression. He pursues. See, I found in my life, if I don't have people in my life who are far from God, I myself am starting to get far from God. Who is Jesus running after in your life right now? And then my question is, why in the world are you not running? Who in my life is Jesus running after? When he runs, I run. What is it? Who is it that God has called you to reach? 99.9% of the world says to us right now, you're the richest person I know. And I just feel this week that some of you are going to get so impassioned and compelled that you're going to make yourself a little bit uncomfortable 
And you're going to find yourself literally reaching out to a neighbor and you're going to go knock on a door and you're thinking in your head, oh dear God, this is the dumbest thing I've done. What am I going to say? God's going to speak to you. I'm just believing. He's going to speak to you and say, go talk to that person. And you're going to think, what am I going to say? And I'm just telling you, the moment you knock on that door, they'll open it up and all of a sudden God will give you the words and you'll begin to sense God using your words. God, you'll begin to sense God using your mouth as a mouthpiece. You'll begin to get yourself in a place where you can pursue other people. Will we be found pursuing? Some of you are going to reach out to someone in your office cubicle this week and you're going to meet a need. You're going to meet a need that other people have overlooked. God's going to cause you to notice it. He will. He will. He'll cause you to notice it. The question is, are you going to help? And when you go and help and you touch that need, then they're going to ask. They might ask internally or externally, but they'll ask it internally. Why in the world did that person meet my need? And here's going to be your answer. Well, because the golden rule says you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But I haven't adopted the golden rule. I've adopted the platinum rule. Do unto others as Jesus has done unto me. I ain't going to wait for nobody to do unto me. I'm doing unto others as he's already done unto me. I'm ready to reach. I'm ready to pursue. This is why you have me on the earth, God, to pursue people. I'm going to ask the band to come. Look at the bottom of your card. We've provided a way, your message card, a very practical way this week to reach out to your neighbor. Some of you may be asking the question, who's my neighbor? Well, that's what this man asked. Jesus, who's my neighbor? Well, we've done things this week. Pastor Chad mentioned to you, we, we sent out a mass mailing in this area. People that we're believing, praying over, God would literally use a mailing piece to draw people to his cross, to draw people to a community that would love them, embrace them. And that's awesome, that's wonderful, but there's a more effective even approach than that. It's much simpler too, and it's not an approach just to invite people to Easter. It's a daily living. It's a way you can live your life. So I've laid it out for you really simply. Get to know your neighbor. K-N-O-W. Right? It's been used many, many times in many, many years. You may have seen some version, portion of this. Here's, here's what we do this week. Who's my neighbor? knock on doors what I'm not saying is you've got to go knock on every door but what I'm asking you by knock on doors is this week in the next six days you take a step towards someone you've not taken a step towards it may be in the office next to you it may be a neighbor that lives in your apartment complex it may be the neighbor whose kids play basketball and their ball rolls across the street into your yard each and every day get out of your own space and knock on doors Go away. Take a step towards someone. The end. Know your neighbor. Name each neighbor. God calls us by name. He calls Zacchaeus by name. Jesus landed in Mark 5 on the region of the Gerasenes and there was a man who was a demoniac who had ripped up everything. The Bible said he had severed some of his own limbs. He's bleeding with pus everywhere. He looks nasty and the first thing that Jesus does when he gets on the store, let's put yourself in that situation. You arrive, a man has been cutting himself, taking off his limbs. He can't be held in the catacombs and the tombs. He comes running and what does Jesus do? I would jump back in the boat. Jesus says, uh, excuse me sir, what is your name? I love that. Nobody's ever asked him his name because he cares about your name. He cares about where you are, and he cares about what you're going through. He said, what's your name? And he said, oh, I'm Legion. Oh, and then he changed that name. He set him free. He laid hands on him. He spoke him free. God cares about names. 
Name each neighbor. You can't, you can't pray for your neighbor until you know their name. Oh, Lord, bless all my neighbors. What? You got a name. Name them. Oak, open your home. Right? You mean I've got to yet practice the art of hospitality? Maybe it's opening your life to someone you've closed off. You see a brother in need, 1 John, and you close your heart to him, how can the love of God be in you? That's what he said. It's strong, but it's what he said. That means we as believers, no matter how much we've been hurt, we live with an open heart. We have to. You have to. What if this week you practice hospitality and ask the family next to you to come eat dinner with you and God began to use your family and your home as a testimony of his goodness and mercy to teach other people what an example of a family looks like who parents by the glory of God who loves one another the love of Christ God wants to use your testimony your home oh it's not right if you wait till it gets right you ain't wait you wait until you die W walk through your community here's what I'm saying it's not, a, it's not a huge commitment, but what if you, every person in this room just committed, not just this week of Easter, but one night a week. Yeah, we do growth phases. Yeah, we do small groups. We have them tonight, connect groups tonight. Yeah, we do Sunday gatherings, Thursday night growth phases. But what if you committed one night a week, not two, not three, just one, where you and your family said, we are going to shut down the phone, shut down the computer, and we're going to walk through our community and get to know the people that are around us. That's what we're going to do. Could you imagine what would happen six months in our church? We wouldn't be in this building. I promise you that. In six months, if we walked through our community and we leveraged all that we are for the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to get to know people. God's running after my neighbor. i got to run after my neighbor. I know in America you work hard. The temptation is to let down our garage, get in our underwear, sit on the couch, and watch March Madness. But listen, what if God in this season is asking you to walk through your community, to leave your garage up, to not sit on the back porch but the front porch and connect with people, reach out to people in your community. Walk through your community. And here's the deal. On the seat next to you are invites. You get as many as you need, but here's my challenge. Everybody in this room, can you get to know two people that are in your current sphere this week? Invite them to Easter next Sunday. I don't know all the stats. I know that George Barnes said 89% of people will come to Easter if they're just invited. I don't know if that's true or not. He does a lot of stats with Gallup. If 89% of people would come, to have an encounter with Jesus Christ if they just get an invite then what would happen if everybody here at least gave two I made it a commitment to invite 50 people to Easter I've only done 11 this week so I got 39 to go but that's what I'm doing by God's grace 39 people I'm going to invite this week take some invites and here's what we're doing Tuesday night impromptu meeting Craig this wasn't planned it's okay Tuesday night 6 o'clock right here in this room from 6 to 7 we're going to pray we're going to pray for Easter at 7 o'clock on the dot, we'll stop. We'll hand out the remaining invites. We're going to go to two places that are in my mind, and we're going to go paint the town and love on people. We're going to ask them for prayer. They need prayer in their life. If we have 50 people show up, we'll go to three or four places. That's cool. 6 o'clock. Well, Craig, I can't get there at 6 because I'm driving. We'll get here at 7 and go minister with us. Well, I can't do that. We'll get there at 7.30. We'll call and text somebody else who's coming to meet us there. You can do it. You can do it. I'm telling you, that's where we're at as a church. We're going to have to train and demonstrate to people if you're uncomfortable with evangelism, you got to get around somebody who's not. And you got to begin to see and break down that mentality and thinking that you can't live outside yourself. You can. God can cause you. You can be fruitful. You can begin to notice others. You can see others. So come this Tuesday. I dare you to. Take those invites and buy. Get to know your neighbor this week. Get to know your neighbor. Would you stand with me all across this room? I want you to bow your heads.
Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That means the greater the harvest, excuse me, the greater the workforce, the larger the harvest. That's a promise God makes. The greater the workforce, the larger the harvest. That means we need people, don't we? We need, God needs harvest hands, willing harvest hands to catch the fruit. Harvest. God says, I've already put people in your life this week who my love has begun to soften. Jeremiah said it's like the hammer that beats on the rock till it breaks. And God's saying, I've already done all the hard work. I'm going to save them. I just need simply you in an effort for partnership to put your hands out and catch the harvest. I'm asking you to partner with me in this great harvest. There's got to be more. And so many of you know that God is nudging you and it's unmistakable. With every head bowed, every eye closed, you know it's unmistakable. God is nudging you. And you don't know how you're going to do it, but you're going to walk. You're going to walk by faith this week. You're going to knock on the door. You're going to talk to your person in your workplace, your school, whoever it is. You notice their need and it's time to meet it. God's calling you, drawing you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask this question today. I want to give the opportunity. You're in this room today. You say, Pastor Craig, well, I am that prodigal son. I'm away from God. Maybe you've known God at some point, but through your deeds, sin, transgression, you've ran away from God. Maybe in grieving the person of the Spirit so much that you don't sense any nearness at all, but you're ready to run to the open arms of the Father. You're ready for the love of Jesus Christ to transform you. You're ready to stop trusting in yourself and put faith in Jesus. You say, Craig, pray for me today. I want to come home. I'm ready to come home. This is my moment. God loves you. God cares for you. God has pursued you in Jesus. Now he's pursuing you through your Holy, his Holy Spirit. All he's asking you to do is surrender. To lift up hands and abdicate the throne of your heart and say, Jesus, somebody's got to settle my heart. And I'm tired of calling the shots. I'm ready for you. I've done it my way and it's been disastrous. I've tried to do it my way too long. I've tried to beat habits. I've tried to beat addiction. I've tried to beat the things that are beating me down. Sin is a kill or be killed battle. And I'm ready to receive the grace, the mercy, the love, the freedom that Jesus died on the cross to purchase for my life. If that's you, I want to count to three. Say, Pastor Craig, pray for me. I want to pray for you. Today's your moment. He said, today's the day of salvation. One, two, three. Is there anyone? You say, pray for me. God bless you. God bless you, man. God bless you. God bless you. You say, I need Jesus. I want to come. Run after Jesus. He's running after me. Is there another one? Is there another one? I see those hands. You say, I need Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. I want everybody in this room, would you lift up both hands to the Lord? I see four hands. I want us to pray a prayer of faith with those that raise their hand. Because raising your hand doesn't save you, but the grace and the blood of Jesus does. He will not come where he's not invited. If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I want us as a church family right Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. God bless you.